Encore episode. Why, right now, it is no longer optional to suck at patient centricity. Today is a recast of my conversation with Dr. Joe Selby, Executive Director at PCORI. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. There is a land grab going on right now, the likes of which the healthcare industry hasn't seen before, at least in our generation. Spoiler alert, there is a whole episode of Relentless Health Value coming up on the impact of the Teladoc Lavongo hookup. And that is totally relevant to the point I'm about to make. But let me just start with a little bit of background. American patients, let's get real here, have no more money to spend on healthcare every year. Really. I mean, neither do employers. The government, who knows. But let's just say for the purposes of this discussion that what's going on right now is a zero-sum game. That the dollars in the system every year are the dollars in the system. And if you want to increase your you know, revenue as any given healthcare stakeholder, you got to take those dollars from somebody else. All right. Now consider this. Previously, if a health system, say, we're going to make a list of their competitors, they'd probably, I don't know, list the health system down the street. Maybe the one in the next town over if there seemed to be a lot of, you know, commuting. <laughs> oh my, how we no longer live in that simple world. Enter the pandemic and patients not only accepting, but kind of digging virtual care and its convenience and its accessibility. Now consider what happened to brick and mortar stores who didn't add online retailers to their list of competitive threats. Virtual entities doing chronic care management, diabetes, musculoskeletal, other population health endeavors, these are now or will soon enough be head-to-head competitors to in-person care settings. My local health system, you know, they may also decide to stand up a telehealth, and, and many of them did. But if the playing field is now in the cloud, how's their patient experience on those systems? You know, everybody accepted that in the beginning, they were, you know, kind of buggy and calls dropped and all you could see was the doctor's ear in a weirdly dark room or something. But like six months later or a year later, not exactly sure when patients, patients <laughs> will run out, especially when there are companies, you know, out there who built amazing virtual experiences from the ground up and who, by the way, are often hired by health plans who, by the way, <laughs> make it financially, let's just say, attractive for patients to use those services that the plan is providing instead of the big, expensive, consolidated health plan that raised their rates 30-fold over the past couple of years, like one of them anecdotally did. So you start to see why. If I were a health system or a provider executive, I'd, you know, kind of shuffle the patient-centricity, design-thinking, patient experience, that whole bunch to the first tab of my spreadsheet. Patients have, at this moment, unprecedented choice, and so do their employers, nothing for nothing. As Matt Anderson, Dr. Matt Anderson told me the other day, if a health system thinks that it's going to make the difference by doing more specialty services and expensive procedures, that might be a risky bet. Other battlegrounds in the land grab include home health or hospital at home. Humana, for one, is trying to dominate the whole home health space. Again, you know, it's a turf war because these patients are now not going to the local hospital, you know, not paying the local hospital, which might be the more operative statement. So anyway, I thought it might be a good idea to replay my conversation with Dr. Joe Selby from early last year. 
Dr. Selby is the executive director of PCORI, otherwise known as the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute. PCORI is an independent nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C. Since December 2012, PCORI has funded hundreds of studies that compare healthcare options to learn which work best given patient circumstances and preference. So it's definitely good background information. Anyone striving for the best patient experience might want to have it at their fingertips. If you want even more advice about what to contemplate when contemplating patient experience, I'd refer you to episode 236, which is my conversation with Liliana Petrova, the CEO and founder over at the Petrova Experience. In that episode, 236, Liliana translates her experience as director of customer experience at JetBlue to the healthcare industry. You could also check out episode 228, How to Figure Out What Patients Really Want, when I spoke with Julie Risch, PhD from the Cleveland Clinic. And I'd round out the mix with episode 252, the not-so-obvious thing that musculoskeletal care and a four-minute mile have in common. And that's when I talked to Chad Gray, CEO, over at Integrated Musculoskeletal Care. I mentioned this last one because Chad's company is pretty much a direct competitor to local orthopedic practices across the nation that, you know, his group is not aligned with. When you listen to this show, you can start to get a beat on how high the bar is starting to raise. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Again, here's the recast of my conversation with Dr. Joe Selby from PCORI. Dr. Joe Selby, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks, Stacey. Good to be here. Do you really think that payers at this juncture, can they afford to make healthcare patients centric in these troubled times? I think without a doubt. One reason that makes me sound so sure of this is that a lot of the studies that we're funding are patient-centered studies. They're studies of, in fact, patient-centered care. And a lot of them actually turn out to demonstrate that if you make care more patient-centered, more aligned with what patients say they need, you actually see decreases in utilization. So we have about 17 studies where interventions from shared decision-making to the introduction of community health workers, as just two examples, lead not only to better patient satisfaction and better patient-reported clinical outcomes, but they also lead to uh, less utilization downstream rather rapidly, fewer emergency department visits, sometimes fewer readmissions to the hospital. Let's take a deeper dive into shared decision-making. How did that go down? Some researchers at the Mayo Clinic used a shared decision-making tool in the emergency room. So a person, a middle-aged person, had come into the emergency room with chest pain. We know that many of the people who come into the emergency room with chest pain are not having a heart attack. In fact, they don't even have cardiovascular disease necessarily. So we can pretty quickly rule out in a matter of two or three hours whether the person has had a heart attack with blood tests and, and an EKG. A lot of hospitals will say, we'd like to see you stay overnight so that we can be certain that you've not had a heart attack. Well, this stresses patients because they know they're going to incur costs. They probably would like to be home with their families this night. They ask about whether they couldn't come back in two or three days and have the test done as an outpatient. So the researchers put in a shared decision-making tool. But on the other hand, patients are reluctant to kind of go against the advice of somebody such as an emergency department physician who's suggesting that they stay all night. So what these researchers did was they created a very nice visual tool that helped people appreciate what their risk for having a heart attack was given who they are, their risk factors, 
and the findings on their electrocardiogram and their blood tests. So it turns out that the majority of people are at very low risk, and there's a very small subset who a prediction tool will tell you, you know, you do have some risk. And with that information, what was seen in this randomized trial at the Mayo Clinic was that, and actually it was at a network of hospitals, not just the Mayo Clinic, was that a much larger group of patients decided that they'd much prefer to go home. Some patients always said, no, thanks, doc. I'd like to go home and come back as an outpatient. But many patients stayed in the hospital. So this cut the number of patients who stayed in the hospital from about 58% to about 26% with absolutely no events. There were no events where a person who said, I want to go home, wound up having a heart attack. They came back, they had their tests as an outpatient. Most of them were negative, but the message was it was perfectly safe to do this. So this is an instance where a shared decision-making tool changes what patients decide to do after hearing from their physician. And, and actually, it helped the physicians too, because it was directed at them as well. Many fewer people stayed overnight in the hospital. That wound up saving bed spaces, saving money, and improving the quality of life of patients. So kind of a win-win-win started by providing good evidence to help people do a shared decision-making exercise. And PCORI funded that study at Mayo. Exactly. And that's right. is it also part of PCORI's mission to then make other ER teams aware of the fact that this tool exists? Exactly. That's what we do. We then follow, and this is uh, unique to my knowledge, to PCORI as a research funder. We don't say, uh-uh, we did the research, now it's on you to disseminate it. When somebody comes up with really compelling findings like that study, we provide funding to those researchers often partnered with dissemination and implementation experts to spread the news and to see if that can't be implemented in other settings more broadly. And, you know, we look to see if that has the same impact. And we also look to understand what gets in the way of implementing good evidence, particularly when it's good evidence that can both improve outcomes and, and save resources. The other example that you mentioned was one with community health workers. Do you want to talk about that one a little bit? Yes, this is one that was it was done out of Philadelphia. These were people with multiple chronic illnesses. So just having diabetes wasn't enough. But if you had heart failure and diabetes and maybe some arthritis as well, which is a not uncommon combination, the researchers put these patients in touch with community health workers who helped them just manage their illness. They were not professionals. They were people from the community. They were, they were, I don't mean to say they weren't paid. They were salaried workers, but they weren't clinicians or nurses. They're people of the community. And this group of community health workers was able to help this group of high utilizing chronic illness patients cut their hospital admission rates and emergency department rates by 50% during the year of follow-up and with really clinically meaningful improvements in quality of life as well. So a nice example of a patient-centered intervention that could affect utilization downstream, saving patients a lot of grief uh, and saving insurers and hospitals that worry about excess utilization and, and multiple admissions do better. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier was that there are longstanding treatments, for example, that don't really have good evidence for them, but they're kind of, I'm assuming from what you're saying, they are just the default care. Do yes. you aim to shine light on some of those? Yes, I'll tell you about one that we have not shown much light on yet, but we and clinicians and patients are all very interested in that. And, and that's the area of back 
surgery. Surgery for lower back pain that is not this classic type of disc pain. So we've, through good studies, we've figured out what to do to a substantial degree for patients who have a so-called bulging disc that sends pain called sciatica down their legs. So this happens to people in midlife and good studies have been done. But there are a lot of people who have chronic low back pain. A lot of these people ultimately make their way to surgery. Uh, Some of these people do very well after surgery and actually get relief. But there are a very large number of people who don't do better And a subgroup of them would say that they're doing worse after the back surgery. It's a great example of an area where a commonly practiced procedure is practiced without the evidence that's needed to make it as safe and effective as possible. Just another quick example is, um, you know, a lot of physicians, I mean, we have two problems with antibiotics. One is physicians prescribe antibiotics when they shouldn't, and a lot of them will tell you it's because of pressure from patients. But the second is that a lot of clinicians are inclined, have been inclined to prescribe broad-spectrum antibiotics, which are both more expensive and have a more of a negative effect on building drug resistance in bacteria. We did a good study which has been picked up, well-received, showing that patients with upper respiratory infections who do need an antibiotic do better when they get a narrow-spectrum antibiotic like penicillin or uh, amoxicillin than when they get these uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics. So the clinical intuition says bring out the big guns, but these people not only pay more, they have slightly less response in terms of uh, getting rid of the infection and more adverse effects. There's just a lot of habits like that in clinical care that aren't backed up by evidence and, and can be undone with good evidence. There are employers who are referring patients to centers of excellence like, for example, Mayo, after they get a back surgery decree, um, and then they go to Mayo for further evaluation, or I think maybe it's Cleveland Clinic. Either way, it was something like 50% of the, the surgeries were deemed unnecessary. So clearly, this is an issue that has traction. The examples that we've discussed thus far, we talked about back surgery, we talked about RA, rheumatoid arthritis, we talked about shared decision-making, community health workers, antibiotics. How are you figuring out what the patients want. (laughs) You know, like we're talking about patient outcomes, but obviously you've got to look across the whole spectrum of what's going on out there in order to select what outcomes to focus on. How do you do that? Well, we have a number of ways of getting research questions to us and we prioritize them. I mean, we have to check and see. Uh, We look for what we call evidence gaps. Where is there really a lack of evidence that we could help by conducting a study? We meet with the patient groups, usually patient organizations, because they they kind of have the broad view about the whole spectrum of illness. Clinician groups, often payers are in the room at the same time because all three have an important perspective if we're going to get this study right. But in choosing between one study and another, we do look at questions such as, What is the prevalence of this disease? How much of it is there? How much suffering is there? What is the burden on healthcare systems and and insurers? What's the burden in terms of suffering on patients? How good are the current therapies if there's nothing available right now? But let me say that half of our research is funded by investigators who come to us with their ideas, and they have been in close consultation with patient groups and clinician groups. So if you want to get funded with one of your ideas from PCORI, you have to convince us that you've done that work for us. 
you've spoken with the patient groups, you've spoken with the clinician groups, and they agree that this is a burning question and this is a study that should be funded. Well, you heard it here first. Anybody out there looking for PCORI funding? Absolutely. Let me double down on that. PCORI is very interested in hearing from applicants with these kinds of questions that I've outlined. Practical questions about uh, long-standing treatments, as well as uh, very, very interested in understanding how new treatments and new approaches fit into what we've been doing to date. I got to tell you, Dr. Selby, one of the things that fascinates me is PCORnet. Do you want to talk about what PCORnet is and what you're doing there? Well, first of all, PCORnet is a national clinical data research network, and it's made up of researchers based in nearly 100 systems across the country who have wrangled their electronic health record data into a common data model so that we can do research that draws data from, you know, Seattle, Washington, San Diego, Miami, and Boston with intermediate stops in Chicago and New Orleans because all of the data is arranged in data sets. The data stay home. The data don't really travel. The programs travel, and we can ask and answer a wide range of comparative questions with these data. Cornet has data on about 100 million persons at this point. The impetus for PCORI funding PCORnet, and it has been a, it's been our largest investment by far, uh, over $300 million just to build the infrastructure and sustain it over five years, is because we think several things. Number one, we think that as clinicians and patients get a feel for this comparative effectiveness research, they're going to realize that it actually could be done very frequently. It would be smart to do this across any number of questions. And secondly, that the research actually has to be done in systems for several reasons. This is where the real patients are, and this is where real world care is happening. And also, these systems are where we hope the findings from the research will transfer to quickly. Also, we hope the systems will contribute to helping ask the questions in the first place. And you mean health systems? And I'm talking about health systems. I'm also talking about insurers because ultimately, and this is a secret we learned, to do really good quality research, you have to be able to link the data from health systems, a lot of which comes out of the electronic health record, to data from claims. Insurers actually follow people better over time and they know what happened to them, whether it happened in that system or maybe in a different system. But Cornet links data from electronic health records with data from claims from insurers. You might think that it's all about doing these big observational big data studies, but we also find that for doing pragmatic randomized trials, really practical real-world studies that need randomization, PCORnet is very well suited. And so, you know, I see a future where PCORnet will grow and, and, and more systems and payers will join, where it will become more commonplace to recognize that this is a question that could benefit from comparative effectiveness analyses, and then recognize the subgroup of those where, you know, we really need to do randomization. That will lead to finding ways to do randomization more unobtrusively so that clinical care goes on, but there's a randomization involved. It is going to need to convince everybody from patients to clinicians to the systems leaders and payers that we're asking questions that matter to them, to their bottom line, and to their patients. Let me ask you this. Is the main goal of PCORnet to answer the, in the simplest terms, what or where? And what I mean by that is, 
Is the idea to collect longitudinal outcomes from patients who have had treatment, ICD-10 code, whatever, with diagnostic codes, whatever, and then see how the outcomes go for various treatments? Or is it to see if there's differences, for example, across institutions or systems, as you put it, or areas of the country, like everybody who has this treatment at this one hospital seems to do better than if they have it at the other or both? It's more the former, but we do have a kind of a network within the network of multiple systems that are themselves using PCORnet to study the ways that they do some aspect of care, whether it's the way they organize their accountable care organization or whether it's the way that they treat their highest utilizing patients. And they do share information with each other. And, you know, there are other places, I call those natural uh, experiments where You've just got systems that are doing things differently, and there's value in studying those differences and, and looking at the outcomes. But Cornet is not in any way a performance assessment outfit or infrastructure. It's a research infrastructure, and people participate in it only because they decide they want to participate in that particular project. But we do see uh, opportunities as the systems get more involved to sit down with other systems and say, hey, you do it differently. I think my way is good. Would you like to compare? We welcome that and be likely to find some funding for it. A gap is understanding what the different outcomes are across institutions. So as a patient, you can select the one that, that best meets your idea of what good looks like as a patient. If I'm a health system, you said earlier, so I'm making an inference here, that if you give your data, you can get data from the system. Is that kind of what the relationship looks like? You know, there's a lot of listeners who work at health systems. Well, yeah, it's an important point. This is a distributed research network and you do the analytic work there in your system and you send the results off to a central place. And it's only the results that are pooled. The results can be used for that purpose and that purpose only. They're not good for other purposes. And you've participated in the study voluntarily, and you've contributed the result, and the data are then put together by merging all the results in a, in a form of analysis that's much like meta-analysis. So what are some of the examples of queries that have happened and learnings from those queries? Well, I'll give you several examples quickly. One was a study of bariatric surgery. So we were able to do a study that had something like 65,000 bariatric surgeries from 2012 through 2017. And it just showed the remarkable rise in use of one procedure called the gastric sleeve, the remarkable decline in another called the gastric banding procedure, and a kind of a steady level of the most complex procedure, which is called the gastric bypass. And it showed that both the sleeve and gastric bypass were very good. The gastric bypass was a little better, but the sleeve was really quite remarkably good at achieving sustained weight loss, reductions in hypertension and diabetes, as the gastric bypass was able to do. The gastric banding was just very, very clearly inferior. And so I think these kind of data help to put gastric banding aside. They shore up the stock of both the bypass and the, and the gastric sleeve. They show that the gastric bypass, which is more complicated, has a modestly higher rate of complications and need for repeat surgeries and things like that. And so it's a much clearer, much more transparent, as you said before, picture of what patients can expect. Uh, they can see that they're going to get be a little bit more likely to sustain major weight loss if they have the more complicated procedure. 
they'll also be a little bit more likely to have a complication. Not a lot, but some patients are more afraid of complications. Some patients want to do whatever it takes to ensure that sustained weight loss. And so it helps in the shared decision-making discussion about which procedure to have. Another example is a very large study about people with heart disease who have been told to take an aspirin. This has been going on for 30 or 40 years. People have been told to take an aspirin. And when you say, doc, which size aspirin, a baby aspirin or an adult aspirin, you get very different answers depending on which doc you ask. Even guidelines differ in whether you should take a baby aspirin or an adult aspirin a day. One thing we are fairly certain of is that an adult aspirin is going to cause more bleeding and would have to be counterbalanced by showing that it's more effective than a tiny aspirin if patients are really going to be told to take a full aspirin a day. So this is a randomized trial, 15,000 persons, and I'll tell you at this point, 13,270 have been recruited from 40 different clinical healthcare systems across the country. And they're being followed. Uh, the study is about a year and a half from completion where we'll have results. But this will answer a question that's been a very practical question about a widespread practice where there was wide variation in practice. And that's been going on for 30 or 40 years. So an example, not a new technology, but a very practical question that patients and clinicians haven't had the answer to. To the people who are listening in, particularly those who come from healthcare systems and health plans, I hope that this makes some sense to you. I think that from Pecornet's and Pecori's perspective, it's very important that the systems actually, number one, appreciate that Pecornet is active in their midst and that it has a lot of potential value to them. And eventually, I think we'll come to the point where systems leaders are able to justifiably take some pride in the fact that they are helping answer these big clinical questions, but they also know that they're getting some value directly from understanding their own data better and possibly from participating in some collaborative work with other systems in PCORI to uh, in PCORNet to learn about, you know, best practices and, and what might work in their system. So very important. It, it's hopefully a culture changer driving toward more collaboration and towards kind of a finding common ground between people who are asking purely clinical questions and people who are asking the more practical questions of every day, keeping the doors open and the lights on and the business running. I got one last question for you, Dr. Selby. What is really frustrating for you right now? What's the thing that you go into a meeting with a health system executive or a payer executive and they Maybe the common understanding of something, it hasn't evolved adequately, or there's just something that is misaligned with your research. You can, I, I, you've said enough to get me to the item that I'll mention. It's a challenge for everybody. But, you know, I, I have to admit that I come from a uh, public health background and I'm a physician. So when somebody says that I can't be interested in that because my time horizon is too short, you know, that may convey a benefit in five years, but how do I know that the patient is still going to be a member of my health plan or a client in my healthcare system, then I need a return on investment tomorrow. Somehow we have to resolve that. I mean, I think there are ways to do it. I think there are ways to find and understand both short-term as well as long-term returns on investment. But I would love to get away from coming into a meeting and finding out that the long-term, longer-term, somewhat longer-term improved outcomes 
are off the table, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that is probably true in many situations. You know, if people are only concerned about their tenure and they're not concerned about the situation that they're going to leave for their... Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the patient's health over their lifespan should be the common ground that we stand on and, and, and that brings us together. And I mean, I'm not saying this isn't a challenge for these systems and companies, but I think we need and I need, we all need to do some work to try to figure out, you know, how we take the fact that we do stand on the common ground and work our way through this hurdle of you know, the benefits are not going to accrue to patients for 7, 10, 20 years. It still has value. And we need to, you know, I think together what we need to do probably is figure out how do we translate that value to the patient into real-time value, you know, in the short term. So I'm reading this book right now called Turn the Ship Around, and it's about a Navy sea captain. And the Navy had a similar problem because captains were only evaluated on what happened on the ship while they were there. And whoever took over the ship subsequently. Mm -hmm. you, you, yeah, that's the same thing. And one of the things that he realized, the author of the book, was that if you only evaluate people on the short term, then you'll get short term results. So maybe there's something in, I'm not sure exactly how you do that because you'd have to give someone a bonus like 10 years hence or something. <laughs> but yes. What you incent for, you typically get, right? I mean, when I said value, I think there is work to be done in thinking about the value equation in the longer term and and incenting people for value that they create that maybe doesn't really pay off to the patient for ten years. It was still a value to get it today. Yeah. That's well, we'll have to we'll have to work on that. Yes, I'll read that book. <laughs> so it is actually a very fascinating book. Where can people go to learn more about Picori if they are interested in doing so? The best place is our website. You can search for studies in any particular topic area that you want. You can look at our 170 publications of the results of studies. So 170 of our about 500 funded CER studies are now published. You can uh, just now, something's gone up called evidence maps, and we're going to produce more of these evidence maps. And they are interactive ways to look at the available evidence in a particular topical area. One of the ones that's up is fatigue in patients with multiple sclerosis. So this is a common, common symptom. And uh, this is a really nice interactive tool that helps you find out what's known about treating fatigue and multiple sclerosis and what is unknown, what hasn't been studied yet. So uh, yes, Pecori's website, which is just pecori.org. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Dr. Selby. It was a pleasure, Stacey. Thanks a lot. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.